Good morning. Welcome to Capital Community Church. Oh, I like it. So many times we say good morning. Let's try it again. Good morning. <laughs> That's great. Um, appreciate your responding. Um, now, my sister, one time uh, early in life, she and her husband were um, working in a, a children's home. And they were cottage parents for a group of eight little boys. And they would take these little boys to church each Sunday. They said the only problem was that the boys had a, a, a tendency to issue, to, uh, to answer rhetorical questions asked from the pulpit. So it's like, is sin wrong? Yes. No. Whatever. But uh, some of it, I appreciate the response back. Um, did I introduce myself or not? Um, uh, my name is Mark Schleife. Uh, my family and I, my wife Angie and our four kids came to Beijing in the summer of 2008 and um, have been here ever since, uh, except for occasional jaunts back, uh, working for the Lord with uh, Bible Study Fellowship and in uh, Christian school here. And um, before we get going any further, we just ask the Lord to, to speak through his words today. Lord God, I, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds to receive your word. I pray you would help us to accept as true everything that you say in your word and weigh carefully anything else because we know your word is true and, and the rest must be examined in light of your word. And so I pray that uh, uh, would not lead astray uh, from what you have to say, uh, but you would speak to each of us, not just from up here, but directly into our hearts to know what we need to receive from you this morning. I pray this your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My family, um, we have one of our, our four kids is still at home, and one is married and here in Beijing, and the other two are back at, in, in the U.S., just having finished college and just having started it. But... Um, Wife and daughter and I were back in the States the last two weeks watching my dad finish his journey, run the race, hit the finish line, and do it in a way that he had prayed from the beginning God would allow him to do in in full consciousness of mind, able to recognize his family, able still to pray for us. Um... (laughs) over a period of about 10 days to tell people goodbye because we were in the, of the two weeks we were there, the first 10 days, um, it was 10 days before he passed. And so we were able to visit with him. Many other people were able to visit with him. Most of the visitation that usually takes place after a funeral or during a funeral process actually took place while dad was still around. And that was the best way. Um, but, and he passed very peacefully. Um, early morning hours of last Saturday. But a couple of nights before, he'd had a bad dream. And he woke up, and my mom, my sister and I had come in there, my mom and he were in there, and, and he was trying to clear the thoughts from his mind, and we, we began rubbing his back, talking to him, reading scripture, um, doing some, singing some songs, doing some different things. And when his mind finally cleared and he was at peace, he says, I think I need to preach a sermon. So I asked him, what would you preach on? He said, I think I would preach on faith or faithfulness. And that was already a topic that was very much in my mind. 
And so it's, and we asked him what text he would use and tried to incorporate a couple of those uh, this morning. But I want to talk about living by faith. And this is always a, a bit of a challenging subject. We talk about faith. If God had just said the righteous will be saved by really hard work, that you'll be justified by how hard you work for God or work hard for God, it would fit with our performance-oriented cultures. But instead, he said, have faith in God. We are justified by faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So what is faith? I want to start, I'm going to give you three stories, three brief accounts, and from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and then uh, a present day of what I've seen in the lives of two people that I love very much. There were three young men, many centuries ago, who through no fault of their own were in a place they did not intend to be, in Babylon. They, along with other young members of the royal families, had been dragged off by King Nebuchadnezzar and taken to serve him in his palace. And these three young men had been given new names, new Babylonian names, that revered the gods of Babylon, the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And through God's actions already in their life, they had become very influential in the Babylonian government. They and their friend Daniel had been promoted because they had lived lives faithful to God from the beginning. God had blessed them and put them in positions of responsibility. But Nebuchadnezzar, as are we all, was a very sinful man. He's a very prideful man, and he decided one day to set up a golden statue in honor of himself and to have everyone in his kingdom bow down. He would play have a huge band play, and whenever they heard the sound of the instruments, they had to bow down and worship that statue. And to cut to the chase, these three young men knew they had gotten where they were by honoring the Lord. They could not dishonor Him by worshiping something else, even though they were probably tempted in the way we are today to make a pragmatic compromise. You know how how we can think through? We could say, God put me in this position for a reason, if, if I don't bow down to this, I will suffer the penalty, which in this case was pretty horrible as being thrown into a fiery furnace to die. God really put me in this position for a purpose. Maybe if I just make this one compromise, then I can survive to do the Lord's work ever after. But the question was, it wasn't their lives that were at stake. It was God's glory that was at stake. So the decision they made was something different. When everyone else bowed down, they were made standing. And this was quickly reported to the king, who was so angry and yet respected them enough that he gave them one more chance. He said, I'll give you one more chance to bow down, or else you'll surely be thrown in the fiery furnace. This is what it says in Daniel 3, 16 through 18, was their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, if we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. 
And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. It's all good so far, right? Bold stand of faith. Here is why I think this is one of the boldest statements of faith in the Bible. They then say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. Even if he does not. As the story goes on, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. In fact, it was made hotter before they were thrown in. So hot, they were bound up in ropes. Men had to carry them to throw them in. And the furnace was so hot, it it killed the men who were throwing them into the furnace. But Christ himself appeared in the furnace with them, protected them so that when they came out, there was not even a smell of smoke on their clothing. Second account I want to bring you to comes out of Luke chapter 7. There's a military commander who had a valued servant, someone who was loyal and faithful to him. They had a mutual respect and love for each other, apparently, from the story. But this servant was near death. And this man was a God-fearing man, even though he was a Roman centurion. And he had even given money to help build the local synagogue. And so he asked some Jewish elders to go to this itinerant rabbi, Jesus Christ, who he had heard had miraculous healing powers, and to ask him to heal his servant. And so these men did. And they went and they spoke to Jesus and said, this is a good God-fearing man. We really think you should come. And so in Luke 7, 6 through 8, it picks up the story and says, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. You see, he knew as a Gentile that his home would defile a good Jewish person, much less a rabbi. He says, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus Christ's response was to turn to the people around him and say, I have not found such faith even in Israel. And then he told the man, the centurion's friends, to return that all would be done as he asked. And even at that very moment, the servant was healed. The third account I want to give you is from my my own life experience watching my parents' lives. My parents... um, were born in the 30s, went to college in the late 50s. My dad had just graduated in 57, and my mom came in as a freshman that fall. And he, he ended up coming back to visit some friends and met her, and they found they had a common call to ministry and to missions, and specifically in Africa. And they began dating and, and married in, in January of 59. And they did go to Africa, to the country of Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe. Uh, they took me with them. When we went in 68, I was just about 17 months old. I had a little sister that was born the next year. But during that time of ministry, there were a lot of challenges. But one that stands out in particular was in um, 1976. We were out on a remote mission station called Sasami. And the Rhodesian War was at its full height. And many mission stations, many uh, schools, church schools, other things... And outlying areas had been attacked already. Sometimes terrorist forces uh, under uh, Mugabe and Nkomo would come in and and they would attack. They would 
perhaps attack a Catholic school and they would kill the nuns and the priests and some of the African workers and they would take all the kids of junior high age out of the country to be indoctrinated and trained as guerrilla fighters to come back in as part of their war efforts. And while we were at Sasami, we actually didn't know this, but it would be evacuated about three months later while we were home on furlough um, because the area had just become so dangerous for any foreign face to be in. And so we, we, would, we would do regular radio checks each day with uh, people in town just to let them know we're okay. We had code words to give them uh, that they would know if we were under duress or things. And we had to be ready to leave at a moment's notice, taking just what we could carry, and they would put the wives and, and children into our little Cessna 180 mission plane, and the others, the, 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 the men would try to make it out on their own over the roads. And during that time, and I didn't know this till till years later, Mom and Dad, who spoke the, the local language of Shona, would hear people talking outside the windows. And they thought that my mom had the, the treasury for the, for the local church in there, and they kept talking about we should go in and we should rob them. And every time, someone in the group would say, no, these are good people, let's leave them alone. And during that time, God gave my parents a, a promise, which is still uh, was one of my dad's favorite Verses, Psalm 91, and I want to read it all the way from verse 1 to 7, particularly verse 7. He gave them as a promise, but it needs, to, needs the rest to be in context. It says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And he gave them that as a very specific promise. And they believed it. And he, and he fulfilled it because he is faithful. They continued ministering in Zimbabwe for many years. But in 1996, they really felt God was leading them to a new role. He had bled them into more of a counseling people and doing things. And, and ministering to younger missionaries and their families as they came on the field. And they believed that he really wanted them to do something like that full time but not in Zimbabwe, where they were. And so they began praying about this. They began speaking with their superiors in the mission structure, who began trying to find them something else in the eastern and, and southern African region. And they said, no, we don't believe we're called here. In 1996, they went home on furlough. And they had to basically, if they were not returning to their posting, they had to resign it. And that left them only 12 weeks to either accept a new posting or go off of salary and medical benefits. But they knew they should not return to where they were, but they did not know to where they were going. It sounds a little bit like some of the things in Hebrews chapter 11, which we're going to get to in a minute. So, 
during those 12 weeks, I think it was about two months in, with about four weeks to go, the position they were going to be, they were later assigned to was actually created during that time. And with about a month to spare, they were asked if they would be willing to go to Central Asia to serve as what are called member care personnel. For people serving in places that they could not be official open missionaries, but definitely needed extra support. And so what they became basically was surrogate parents and grandparents to all these families. In fact, they ministered to a family of a guy that I worked with for years and year, for several years at my first job in the States. He and his wife and their three little girls went to Turkmenistan. And they were, uh, they were ministered to by my mom and dad. And so God was preparing them for this new ministry and leading them, even though they didn't know what it was, But during that time, he was also preparing them for the ministry they'd have in retirement because they made so many new relationships with with families throughout that region, all the former Soviet republics, Pakistan, Turkey, as far over as Indonesia and Malaysia. And when they retired, they went to Arkadelphia, Arkansas, where they had gone to, to college My sister and I and my wife went to college where our kids are going to college. And God gave them a ministry with missionary kids and other students in that place. They opened their home. It was kids would come over. They'd be watching a movie in one room. They'd be doing something, playing games or puzzles in here on the computer, on the Wi-Fi, whatever they needed. And it was just a place that many people flowed through. And their families, when they're back on furlough, would come through there too, could stay the night if they needed to in the spare bedroom. And God prepared them into a new relationship, which turned into what has become so far a 15-year ministry. About six years ago, they found that dad's levels were, his blood levels were doing funny things. And soon realized his kidneys were failing. And they found a a tumor in one of his kidneys and thought that actually he only has one kidney. His kidneys, it's a strange thing that happened in the womb. Both his kidneys are joined together, which complicated things, kind of a horseshoe shape. But he found, they found this mass in a kidney, and they did surgery to take it out. Turned out it was benign, and it really was not effect. His kidneys were failing. Soon quit functioning altogether. And so he went on peritoneal dialysis. It's a process where they flush fluids into your abdominal cavity four times a day, and you change them out. My mom learned how to do that process and would do it four times a day for him at home. They, put him, they said he was in pretty good health otherwise, and so they put him on a kidney transplant list. They went through that process for a little over, about three years. He had gotten to the top of the transplant list when suddenly he was having trouble eating. And they discovered that every group of esophageal muscles, his esophagus completely stopped working. There are three separate groups, and doctors had never seen anything like it before. All three groups just completely shut down. He was having trouble because the food wouldn't go down, and so it was aspirating back into his lungs, causing other conditions. At that point, they had to take the tube that was already in him out, put another tube directly into his stomach, and he went on hemodialysis, where he would get his blood flushed through a machine three times a week, while he would take his meals through a tube into his stomach four times a day. And my mom did all that for him. And this is where she began, and we'll come to the... And we can show that verse here. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
every correspondence we receive from her. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. As the song said, as we were singing, from life's first cry to final breath, he directs our paths. It's all in his control. And so, there were days of sorrow, frustration, discouragement, tears, going, Lord, why this next step? Always back to that verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. Um, Other things started to crop up. Weird autoimmune things, which would cover his whole body with blisters. His liver acted as though it had cirrhosis. They did a biopsy, and they said there's no cirrhosis of the liver, but it acted just like there was. Fluids began to build up in his body. And to the point where they could drain, they would go in every two weeks, and they could drain 20 pounds of fluid out of his abdomen. Except that even that began to be a law of diminishing returns because it would start building up pockets, and after a while they could only get one or two pounds, maybe a liter or so. And so each thing added something else, and still God kept him around. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, every single thing that, that happened. And then finally, uh, about a year ago, they just detected a new growth in his kidney. A malignant tumor had sprung up there, even though his kidneys weren't working at all now. But he was so weak, even the biopsy almost bled to death. So they knew they couldn't do a surgical procedure. The fluid was continuing to build. The, this, this, this cancer was very aggressive. So last summer, what Dad did is he gathered children and grandchildren together, and he told us goodbye. He told us what he stood for, what he lived for. He lived for God and his word. He had confidence in where he was going. And he just wanted to be able to tell us goodbye in case he didn't get the chance later. And it was a time of tears and laughter. You know, these times are are a mix of those things. And he continued on the dialysis and he said, I will bear any pain as long as I can still know you and pray for you. And I commit as long as I'm here to pray for all of you. So I'd call him each week on the phone. Sometimes his voice is so weak he could barely talk. Usually I'd call him on Sunday morning, so he'd be watching the Arkansas Razorbacks play football on the Saturday evening. Sometimes that was good. Sometimes it was bad. We had an up-and-down season this year. But it was nice that he was doing things that he enjoyed. He was there with my mother. My son was there finishing up his last semester of school. About three weeks ago, the doctor said, his heart was becoming too weak to continue on the dialysis. And they said, we don't want you to have a cardiac arrest here on the machine at, at, at the clinic. We want you to be able to, to be. Now, I need to mention something, just in passing. God gave them a church of incredible people, also living by faith, who committed to drive them 45 minutes one way, three days a week, up to the dialysis clinic. And what that provided is an extra blessing, besides just the the transport, was instead of being cut off from their church community, instead of being drawn into just the community of the dying at the dialysis center and the 
the, the medical community that served them, they actually made new relationships, new people who came to the church who would sign up to take Jerry and Barbara Schleife up to dialysis. Amazing church. Showing just what it is to live in community. And three weeks ago, they said he couldn't continue. They wanted a chance for him to die with to pass away with dignity at home. And so he entered hospice. And so we went back February 4th just to see him. That was the last day. They told, he made sure, he walked around in the clinic <coughs> and asked every person, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Actually, he rolled around the clinic. He wasn't walking too well, but the, and they made a practice of that. And people would listen to him because they knew he cared. They knew it was real. The week before, my mom had just struck up a conversation with a young Hispanic couple whose mother was dying of cancer and on dialysis. <coughs> Excuse me. And they said, well, mom's going to be in a better place soon. And my mother said, does she know Jesus? Because to be in a better place, she needs to know Jesus Christ. I just had a brief conversation with them. And on Friday, when they went back to the clinic, they came up and wanted to talk to her. And they said, we thought about what you were saying. So we went to that church down on Main Street on Wednesday night, and we asked them, how do you know Jesus? They said, now we know him. Both of them. And they said, can you come in and tell her mother? She doesn't speak much English, but we'll translate for you. And so they went into Miss Rosa's room, into the chair where Miss Rosa was going through dialysis. And they talked to her and Miss Rosa accepted the Lord. Something that was said at Dad's memorial service was this. The preacher said, I, I hesitate to say this in situations like this, but I really believe God gave this illness and this condition to send you to a very specific mission field, to change your mission field, to give you an opportunity to talk to the people you talk to. And you know, in God's sovereignty, he has the right to do that with every one of us. Dad spent a full week after the first time he skipped dialysis visiting with everybody. He passed suddenly into the Lord's presence, just took a final breath and went. He'd been talking to us before that. And you know, he said he needed to preach a sermon, a sermon on faith. He lived a sermon. Thanks, Josh. He lived a sermon. Now, each of those stories, and I'm, I wanted to give you the one that was personal, but each of those stories, no less the, the ones in Scripture, the ones that would take place in each of our lives, are examples of living by faith. But what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us probably our best definition of it it says in the niv now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see tried a couple other translations the esv or the nasb say now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen or in the king james version now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Because it's all well and good to know that, oh, this person lived by faith, but how do I live by faith? What's faith? How do I get it? How do I get more of it? The Bible says if you have just this much faith, you move mountains. How do I add to my faith? What is it? Well, it says according to this, 
things hoped for but unseen. Because they're unseen things, sometimes people talk about blind faith, but this is not blind. Blind is not knowing what's to come. There must be some basis of knowledge for our hope to be attached to them. In fact, there is assurance and a certainty that the things we hope for exist, and faith provides the very substance and evidence of them. Therefore, faith must be something measurable. It must be something observable, which indicates the reality of other things which cannot be observed at this time. And we do that all the time. My wife is sick at home today. I don't doubt my wife's existence. I'm very grateful for it. I have, I have, um, you know, I'm, just because I can't see her now does not mean I don't know where she is. I don't see gravity, but I trust it every day. Or else it would be like a Calvin and Hobbes thing where you're suddenly flying up, gravity's revoked, and you're suddenly flying off into space. The things that God has given us may not be seen, but they are seen in the faith of those who have them in their lives. That is measurable, it's observable. In fact, it says in Hebrews 11.3, it says that by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command and what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That must mean if what's visible was made out of the invisible, the invisible must be greater. Life is driven by that which we don't see, but we see it manifested. And we see it most of all manifested by the life of God's Spirit in his people. We see that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see that in that Roman centurion. I saw that in Jerry and Barbara Schleif. I see it in, in you every day in the people around me here in Beijing. Therefore, the things that are unseen are greater and give meaning to the things which are seen. And when people believe in this priority and consequently live their lives according to it, they exhibit faith. And James chapter 2, give you homework, not going to talk through it today, but James chapter 2, he's going to insist that faith is lived out. You cannot have faith without living it out. And Hebrews 11 will back that up. Faith is living in a way that shows we truly believe that God has greater things for us in eternity than we presently can experience on earth. That his desires and his rewards are worth far more than anything else we might gain in this life. If you look at all the examples mentioned in this chapter, they wouldn't risk losing anything. And this is more homework. You read through Hebrews chapter 11. It says that people, Noah was told about rain and a flood. Never had rained. But in faith, he built an ark and his family was saved. Abraham left one of the most modern cities of his day to go be a nomad the rest of his life because God had promised him a place. It says people were enabled to receive their, de- their, their loved ones back from the dead or enabled to live lives where they died worthy deaths, sometimes terrible, torturous deaths for the glory of God because they were looking for something that was much greater. They were looking for another country. Their actions prove their, their priorities. And Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Believe in his existence and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We must believe in him as he is. We try to make of God whatever we desire God to be. 
but we must believe in him as he truly exists. He has shown us that in history, which could be called his story, his word, and his son, Jesus Christ, who was God among us, lived and walked among us in the flesh. We also need to understand his heart towards us and the rewards that he earnests, that he desires to give to us. So you can kind of break it down. I've got three things here, three things that we need to firmly believe in. God's authority. He is holy. He is sovereign. That means he is in control of every single situation. Nothing surprises God. He is our designer and our creator. He knows us better than we know ourselves or could possibly know. He knows the future too, his capability. He's all-powerful and he is all-wise. There are many more things, but those two things in particular, he is more powerful than us and he is wiser than us. Who makes the better decisions for our futures, for our circumstances? But you know, we can believe, sure, I believe that God can do all things, but will he do them for me? That's God's intentions. That's his character. His goodness, his love, and his perseverance, his faithfulness. We have faith because God is faithful. We have faith in a God who will not let us down and who cares. We have to believe in all three of these, not just one or two. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed in God's authority above all things. God was sovereign and holy, and he must be respected above this king who was arguably the most powerful human ruler on the earth at that time. They believed God could rescue them. All powerful, all wise. They believed God would want to rescue them. But back to his sovereignty, that if God chose for his own best purposes not to, then that was what they would do. That is saying that the the desires of God are greater than my desires in this situation. With the centurion, he recognized God's authority to do anything he wanted from wherever he desired. He, He appreciated God's capability and intentions or he'd never have asked. But he was humble before the authority of God. In my own parents' lives, what I see time and again was they said, Lord, I don't understand the circumstance you've brought, but I trust you, not the circumstance. We believe both in God and his rewards. We can prove that in at least three distinct ways. Three aspects of living by faith, and there's, there's plenty more. But trusting God is one who is faithful. And trust is the first major hurdle. It is very hard for us to trust God. We suspect he'll not provide what we most desire in the way that we most want it. And we're usually right about that. Because the way that we most want it or what we most desire may not be the best. And the best is what God desires. Because we can't see the future and don't possess great wisdom, we often desire things that will bring disaster. And even when we've trusted him in the past, a new crisis has the ability to just rock our world. A medical report or even in just the daily little details. Already today... I've had a disagreement with my wife. I've had the, the breaker on, our, uh, on one of the circuits in the kitchen flip twice. I've had other aggravations that came up before I even got to church today. And in every one of those situations, I have choices of whether I honor God in my circumstances or I get under my circumstances and let myself just, just grovel there. There were times in this last week 
or week before, on Saturday, the day my dad died in the, in the very early morning, it was 70 degrees in Arkansas. By Sunday evening, it had dropped into the 20s. People saw a winter storm coming. It was all predicted, 100% chance of precipitation. Arkansas is kind of a weird state in weather-wise. We got a layered effect. We got snow, sleet, freezing rain, and nothing. We were in the freezing rain. Everything around us got completely coated in ice. Um, we, we actually delayed the burial by a, a day and in, in, in the morning, we were out there, the sun was shining, and it was like winter wonderland everywhere. Everything was coated in a skin of ice. And I was going, Lord, why on earth? You know the timing of these things. You hold the weather patterns. There are people coming from all around wanting to honor my dad this weekend. Why on earth this storm now? We prayed. We asked him, Lord, could you hold the storm off? He let it come. And I looked at that and I laughed and said, here I am, one human being saying, Lord, would you change the patterns of the whole weather system here for the sake of something I want and the way I desire it? Ten minutes before the memorial service, they had established a Skype link with my daughter, Jessica, here in Beijing. She's about to have our first grandchild any day now. And so she couldn't come and be at the, uh, with my dad at the, uh, and be at his funeral. But they established a link. They had it all set up. My sister had worked sleepless nights to put this wonderful PowerPoint presentation that had my dad's life on it. And 10 minutes before the service was to start, all of Arkadelphia lost power for the next four hours. And then up and down for the next two days. We had a memorial service with just a little bit of light that filtered in from the windows. Projecting, as Carl would say, from, from the, uh, as we spoke. And it was wonderful. You had to look really close in the fellowship hall afterwards to see what you were eating. The coffee was cold. But it was a wonderful, intimate reminder of what my dad's life had been. God works in our circumstances but crises, when we have a crisis of circumstances, what it reveals is that we're trusting in something else other than the Lord. And it quickly reveals what those things are. Rick has talked about this several times because those are the things that are threatened. We don't trust God because of a specific outcome. Because we trust Him, we accept whatever outcome He provides. That is active faith. That is saying, I don't understand, Lord. But sometimes through tears, frustration, and sorrow, I say, I move on knowing you're good. You're in control, and you desire the best. Real quickly, pursuing God is one who is loved. God has pursued every one of us all our lives. And he wants to be pursued in return. Doesn't, get mar- doesn't marriage get boring when you stop the pursuit? Doesn't a relationship get boring when you stop the pursuit? When you're not actively seeking after and seeking opportunities to love the other person in that relationship. God wants us to pursue him as one that is loved, just as he has loved us first. When we earnestly seek him out, that's faith. And then finally, serving God as one who's worthy. True love 
Godly love serves the one who's being loved. We saw that in the example of Abraham and Lot that was mentioned this morning by Rick. Abraham said, because he loved Lot as a son, you take first choice. Ephesians 5 and 6 talks about relationships and marriage. It said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for God. When we begin to demand service, that's not love. And we can do the same thing with God. We can treat God like he's our valet. God, why didn't you do this with me? I'm so disappointed in you. Instead of demanding to be served, there's a priority given to the other's needs. And we love because God first loved us. This is something that's not just tested in the grand strokes of life. It's tested in all the little details. One more example for us. A couple of days before Dad had passed, we got a call from Jessica. Thought she was going into labor. There we are sitting in the U.S., our daughter and our first, having our first grandchild here in Beijing, totally torn. What do we do? Does Angie come back? Do I say, I said, let's not talk about it now. But Lord, and my conversation with the Lord is, Lord, you have all timing. Why would you do this now? And we waited anxiously and gratefully found out that it wasn't time yet for that baby to be born. And God put all things in his order, but it didn't change at the moment our anxiety. Faith says, despite the anxiety, Lord, I put it into your hands, trusting that when we come out the other end of this, you've got it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your love, your grace towards us. I know I've spoken long this morning, but Lord, I just pray that you would use in each of us what you've already put there to the best effect. Help us to turn it all over to you, our circumstances, our abilities, our fears, our desires, and to trust in you. Because you are good, you are capable, you are willing, and you know better than we do. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.